Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joined today, he's an author, cancer survivor, and digital creator. It's Edward Miski. How are you doing today, Edward? Hey, I'm doing all right, Alex. Thanks. How are you? Doing good. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what you like doing growing up. <laughs> LOL. Um, I am from Pennsylvania. I grew up in Amish land. Uh, our neighbors were literally farms, like, like as far as you can see, it was just like farms, <laughs> then a house cluster, then farms, then a house cluster. Um, and so like that kind of really, I think it was kind of great growing up in that kind of environment because it, there wasn't a lot to do. So we had to make stuff to do. And I kind of like went into business for myself when I was about four or five. And uh, my sisters and I built, my older sister and I built this like little wooden stand made out of two by fours. And we like strung together beaded jewelry on elastic string that was like worth like a cent if if that. And we like stuck it out in the driveway and we'd just stand there and wait for people to stop and buy anything. But because we lived around farms, like no one stopped and bought anything. So it was it was like fun stuff like that. And we were big on board games and running around it in the backyard. And, you know, we were very like active, adventurous, imagination driven children. Do you feel having that lifestyle that you lived in with your family kind of brought that creativity out of you right at the beginning? Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't have a choice. Like, my dad was a musician. My mom played piano. We were all singers. Like, my dad had a recording studio in the house that he, like, cobbled together from, like, random pieces of equipment that he bought or borrowed or stole, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, we always, we always had the arts in the house. You know, my grandparents were big on pushing it. We, we took art classes when we were kids that my grandparents paid for it. And, you know, it was just kind of a thing that we, that we had. It was, it, honestly, it was that or like go hunting with the neighbors and shoot guns. And we were like, mm, <laughs> let's, let's play the piano. <laughs> was there a type of style of music that your family did? Like you talked about your parents were musicians. Yeah, I mean, my dad, my dad is still, I mean, he's still a recording artist. He's on like his fifth or sixth album now. And he, he's a folk, folk singer, songwriter style kind of guy, like very Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell kind of umbrella of things. Um, and we grew up with that, of course, but he, we also had like a wall of records, you know, mm-hmm. of all like the 33s and 45s and, and those were nonstop. And it was like very like 70s and 80s rock and like, you know, Billy Joel and Elvis and Queen and Sticks and Dire Straits and, you know, like gentle giants and like all these groups that most people probably have never heard of beyond that. And, uh, (laughs) you know, like, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, but it it just was like, it was a very music filled house. And then God, when like CDs were introduced and Broadway started to happen in the house, that was just the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) What did you like about the musical aspect in your household? What did it teach you about yourself? I didn't know that other people's houses were not like that, you know, like again, farms. So I think up until a certain age, I just assumed that everyone was doing the same thing. And like everyone had a piano and everyone played piano and everyone like had parents who were like sages of music, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like carrying you through the Rubicon of music and musical genius and shit. But like, you know, I, I don't, I don't think there was a particular moment that there wasn't that wasn't normal and so i i don't really know how to answer that like it was just the thing that we did 
Was there ever a moment where you kind of went outside of the bubble in a way, like out of the farmlands and into the city life and kind of realize, oh, I, this there is a different world out here or people live differently than how you did? Yeah, well, I mean, so we had like moved to the big city, which was not a city at all. I mean, we went from like a 2,800 person town to like a 50,000 person town, um, like 45 miles away or 45 minutes away. Sorry. And, uh, it was cause we switched schools. We went from public to private and, um, because of some things that had happened to me, uh, at that school. And, uh, you know, we also like back roads and we're getting to about the age where we were going to start driving soon. And my parents were just like, Nope, we are moving to civilization. And, uh, part of that was because a lot of people we knew were like getting in car accidents and dying on the back roads. So it was kind of like, cool. We're not going to, we're not going to participate in that. And, uh, you know, so we moved and we hit the other town and it definitely was different in the sense that it was like, oh, there's things to do here that isn't like the one bar and the ice cream shop and the, like the deli and the library and that's it. Um, but it was really kind of like, of course I had seen movies and, and whatnot that showcased cities, but I'd never really experienced one until I was about, I think, 12 or 13. The family came to New York City collectively for a trip together, and it was like, (gasps) I've seen this in the movies. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, kind of from that point forward, it was like, I will live here. I will figure out a way, but I am going to live here. And it kind of ruined me for the rest of uh, my like parochial school situation, because I didn't want to be there. And it was always just kind of like, I'm going to move to New York. Like, I never had any interest in looking at colleges, didn't even bother. I was like, fuck that shit. I'm not going to go put myself into debt straight away. So I kind of just threw myself into the mouth of the beast and made it happen. And, you know, what, like talking about it in hindsight, like not the best thing I could have done, you know, super dangerous, super, like not a good idea. Um, I had no friends. I had no money. And no job and no plan. I just was like, I'm going. <laughs> Goodbye. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the I guess it was a very long transition to kind of learn that other people that were not, like, living in the middle of a field existed. Um, I think I knew it, but I didn't know it. You know what I mean? Did you have that dream job that you're, you talked about how you didn't want to go to college, you didn't want to go into that route, you wanted to move to New York and things like that, but did you kind of have that fun dream job that you always wanted? Do I have it or did I Did have you it? at that time? Oh, God, no. I was 18. I had $600 in my pocket. I didn't know how to apply for jobs that were not at the mall. <laughs> and like, yeah, I mean, I just kind of figured it out. I had my parents like got me a laptop for my birthday at that year. And I was like, wow, okay, well this makes applying jo- for jobs easier or no, it was graduation. It was graduation present. And um, yeah, I mean, I just was like, again, like throwing yourself in the deep end and fate and like being like, figure it out. Don't drown. Best of luck to you. Um, but dream job. I mean, I've been super lucky where, you know, I've worked, in everything i i've been a waiter i've worked in venture capital i've been an actor traveling the country i've produced my own shows i wrote a book like i kind of have always been a defiant little brat and just been like i do what i want and i'm gonna make what i want and that's just kind of how i function for better or worse (laughs) (laughs) 
But um, dream job, I mean, I don't think, I don't know if I have one. I think my dream job is like whatever feels right when it's happening. Yeah. No, I agree with that because sometimes you can't tell, change the course of action. Like you don't know where, like you don't know what tomorrow is going to be like. You could come up with a great idea tomorrow and then you go full force towards it. But you mentioned how you just kind of were like, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And I feel that's so valuable nowadays because people are always making decisions off of maybe other people's choices or what they want them to do. And you kind of had that idea. You knew what you wanted. You just had to go do it. And you were taking risks. Yeah. I mean, big ones. And, and thankfully like my family was able to help me while I was like floundering around, flopping around, trying to find a job that would pay me, you know, with like no job experience at all. You just have to lie in your resume. Like that's really what it comes down to. You're just like, yes, I was the CEO at Twitter. Thank you so much. Um, but, uh, like it's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it was because I grew up not knowing any better that I could just kind of be like, I'm just going to do it. And my parents empowered all of us when we were kids to kind of like, if you want something, ask, or if you want something, do it yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for better or worse, that's kind of how I functioned for the up to present day, you know, and, and certainly like the decision to, I'm just going to do whatever I want is a very broad strokes of what that looks like. Obviously you need to have to be able to like support yourself so that you yeah. don't end up homeless trying to do what you want. Uh, but <laughs> it's, it's just so many people hold themselves back and prevent themselves from doing what they want because they think they have to color inside the lines and like jokes on you. Like the lines aren't real. Like they're made up. Someone just told you that there were lines there and you're like, oh, okay, cool. Like there are no lines. Do whatever you want. How did you get into venture capitalists? It or... was a fucking accident, man. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening to all the different areas that you worked in and that one just kind of stands out because it doesn't go with the other one. It doesn't. And I don't go with it. <laughs> <laughs> I think if I would do it now, I'd be so much better at it. I was 20. And uh, I had been working with a temp agency. I was looking for something to like transition me out of a job. I was working at a hair salon and it was, it was going South quickly. And I was like, well, I need to find a job, but I'm working all day. So how can I do this? And so a friend of mine was like, oh, you should call this temp agency. I know like, you know, whatever. And I ended up being friends with the woman who placed me at this job, but they were looking for a, a part-time replacement executive assistant while the owner was like in India doing some kind of like ph philanthropy work or something. And it was supposed to be for three weeks. And I emailed my job and I was like, Hey, I'm really sorry. Like, this is what they're paying me. And like, I have to be here. Like if, if you want to match that, I'm happy to prioritize you guys like me at 20 years old. Like <laughs> <laughs> if you would like to pay me that I will prioritize, like who, who was I? And, uh, <laughs> just such a brat. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I got there and there was nothing to do. And I was just sitting in this little like glass cubicle thing, twiddling my thumbs, searching eBay. And I just decided one day someone asked me for something out of the supply closet and, and the supply closet was a hot mess. And so I went in the supply closet, gutted it, reorganized everything, labeled everything, labeled all the shelves and like just kind of blew through. And the office manager was like, <laughs> 
what what did you just do? I was like, it was a mess. And that literal moment turned into me working there full time. Unfortunately, it was 2007 into 2008. So that was a one year situation until everything fell apart and crashed and I was given a severance and resigned by. <laughs> <laughs> but it was that was a great summer. I was let go in June and I had a four month severance that I milked the shit out of and did whatever I wanted for that whole summer. Cause I had salary and benefits coming in and it was like, cool. I don't need to do anything. Great. Did that job make you kind of real realize what kind of direction you wanted to go next after? Yeah. Well, I mean, it kind of, it was so happenstantial. It was, it was like the universe was like, all right, you fucked around enough here for the last couple of years. Like we're going to put you back on track. And I was working in this office. I got pulled into a glass cubicle with the CFO and they were like, the world is burning and we need to like get rid of you because I was the last hire. And so I was given my severance package. I signed it after they explained it to me and I left. And that summer, like, again, went to every party I could get my hands on because it was like free money, summer camp, no parents. (laughs) And, uh... (laughs) But then once I realized, like, oh, the money's going to be gone soon, and I don't want to have to go back to doing that, so what can I do? And it was like, well, you idiot, you moved to New York City to, like, do theater, so why don't you go do that? And so I took some of the money, I got headshots done, joined a gym, and uh, started auditioning, and I started booking stuff, like, right away. It was, like, two months until I booked something out of town. And, uh, you know, it was pretty... Semi semi back to back from that point on, from like 2008 on. But that was the bridge. It was the bridge of like, I could have stayed in like the venture capital space. I certainly like temped down on Wall Street a lot. One of, uh, I love telling this story. One of the worst jobs I had during this period of time was through the same temp agency just to like hold me over while I was like waiting for auditions to happen. And because uh, that goes in seasons and it's cyclical. I got sent to Barclays uh, over the over that summer, and my job was to sit in a conference room and wait for the office manager to come and get me. And when she came and got me, I had to go to a particular person's desk, clear it off, put everything in a box, and go back to the conference room because <laughs> that because that person was in the CEO's office being let go, and. <laughs> I was pushed. I was called names. I was had things thrown at me. It was it was like seventeen an hour in two thousand eight, which at the time was like good for someone who's twenty years old. And I'm just like I'm being abused in the workplace. <laughs> like, <laughs> but these poor people that were being like you know axed, and then I had to go clean out their desk for them. It was just like it was so wild. Like. <laughs> I wasn't the only one doing it. There were a couple of us, but it was just like, what? what is life? What is happening here? And, uh, you know, that, that kind of made me double down on the whole, I'm going to do whatever I want because seeing those people who had like the dream job, making six mm-hmm. figures, doing all the things, you know, controlling the financial world, like they were getting canned. And what are you going to do? Like, <laughs> neither of us have a job. Like we're both in the yeah. same situation here, man. <laughs> like, it was a wild time. It's just crazy to think that's an actual position that's out there. Like a temp agency is hiring someone to do that exact job. And you would never have expected that. Well, I mean, it was it was very specific to the time. 
you know, like oh, that's that's, that's probably not a job that happens now. But no. like after Lehman Brothers crashed and everything was like going to shit, they just had so many layoffs that and they were I guess having an experience, then I don't know this to be sure. It's my assumption that they were having some kind of experience in the office where people were like getting violent or disagreeable at a high level where they needed someone else to pack up their desk for them. Mm -hmm. And we were like moving computers to the other side of the room and like putting them all in a different conference room. It was so weird. Such a strange time. With going with bookings, trying to find the next acting gig and things like that, what's the hardest part that maybe someone that's coming up wanting to be in that industry may not know about? Not listening to other people. You know, you get into like this audition holding room, like herd mentality where people are like, well, I heard this and oh, you can't do that. And oh, you know, this person really likes it when you do this. And so you become this very confused kind of like, I have to please everyone. And it really just ends up not serving you. Like, go into the room, do whatever the fuck you want that's, like, within the parameters of what they're asking for. Mm -hmm. And, like, stop listening to these fucking people. Like, most of the time, and, and this is true in all fields, most of the time, no one knows what the fuck they're talking about. They're speaking from a place of authority of what they know best from their experience. And their experience is unique and doesn't affect you. And, like, maybe it's helpful. Maybe you can take some of it with a grain of salt. But, like, don't go to auditions and listen to people. Be like, okay, thank you. And, like, and that's not to say don't make friends. Some of my closest friends to this day I have met in audition rooms, like, 15 years ago. But, you know, be discerning. Is there a moment that you listen to someone and it kind of changed the whole impact of that moment for you? That where now you realize and learn from that moment. No, um, <laughs> the only thing that is jumping out on me is actually from a class that I took, uh, which was styled like an audition, but it was from the, it was with the resident director of Les Mis. So this guy, Anthony Lynn, he's the resident director of all productions of Les Mis that are of note. And I took this class with him because it was being cast at the moment and I wanted to be in it. And it wasn't even a note that was directed to me. It was just something he said to the other other people in the class. And he basically said, whatever you're doing, whatever song you're doing, and I think this applies in life too, whatever song you're doing, whatever story you're trying to tell, whatever character you're trying to create, don't play the victim. It's boring. Do something else. And he was talking about, I don't know if you know Blame is at all or whatever, but, um, you're staring at me, so I feel like the answer's no. <laughs> no. I mean, I only I've heard of it, don't know anything about it. How dare you? Okay. Well, <laughs> in in the in the film that they just put out, it's the Anne Hathaway character. Um, and she's like, you know, she works in a factory to support a kid that she had because she's a prostitute, and then she gets syphilis and dies after she's like brutally, you know, paid for by some guy whatever and then she sings this like really miserable song about her life is not what it turned out what she thought it would turn out to be and this girl in the class was singing that song and he said to her like and the whole class like don't play the victim do something else that's boring um and so i've taken that i've carried that with me for years i mean anything i do i'm like are you the victim here okay we'll stop it what else can you do and that's not just like roles i've played that's anything like like you lose a job okay okay, if I'm not the victim, then what am I? Then I'm a person who is 
who has the opportunity to look for another job. Yep. And make my life better. I think a lot of people try to play the victim. You see it nowadays and it's, Oh yeah. You have to think, well, if someone else is going through that, what are you going to do about it? Like if I'm not going to, if I lose a job, I'm going to go find a new job and get myself back out there. Like it's your opportunity. Like how you mentioned where, you didn't have that job, but it gave you the opportunity to go do what you want. Go be an actor, get into the entertainment industry and things like that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a reason, I I believe that there is a reason for everything, whether it's a good yeah. thing or a bad thing. And, you know, everything is an opportunity and it's up to you whether or not you're going to jump through that window or not. Do you have a favorite gig that you did or you got the opportunity to do? There's so many answers to this um, <laughs> for so many different reasons. Um, I will give you the short list. Uh, Into the Woods, I did it in Nantucket. The guy who played opposite of me, who was the other prince, is just the best human in the world. Um, One of my favorite people I've ever met. And he made that summer, as well as just being on that island and everything else, absolutely incredible. Um, he and his wife and their their kid just moved down the street from me, and I've yet to see them because that's how <laughs> New York works. Um, but just a gem. And then after that was 42nd Street. That was the first Broadway show I ever saw. And so then being able to kind of like have that full circle moment where then I also was in it and playing a lead role uh, was wonderful. And then also I created a concert that I turned around, uh, that I toured around the country with called Baritoned. Uh, our original tag was damsels in distress and now it's d- baritone does Broadway's leading ladies, but it was a bunch of really tall, like big bearded men singing the leading ladies of Broadway. And it was really fun. And we had such a good time. And it was like a thing I made that I did that got traction and attention and people were paying attention to. And, you know, it was great. And then most recently I was booked in the national tour of Chicago as Billy Flynn. And then I was replaced at the last minute without really any notice or reasoning. So those have been, you know, there's a gamut of feelings around all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, they all led to something that was, you know, I mean, Into the Woods led to 42nd Street. 42nd Street led to me being burnt out and needing a break, which caused me to write a book, you know, which got me here. And like Chicago would have is happening now. And had I been on that, I would not be able to do the things that I'm doing with my book now. So, yeah, you know, you have to look for the reasoning why you're not. Did the career path you've taken kind of challenge you from a professional life that you're living and a personal life that you're living? Or were you able to kind of make both coexist with each other? Well, you kind of have to have both coexist, right? Like you're not getting paid enough to do the performing part. Like no one pays enough. Mm-hmm. Flat, flat, true. Like unless you are on Broadway, you are not being paid enough. And so you have to figure out both, you know, and there are ways to do that. And more recently than not, we're seeing a lot of people who work in the creative space having started their own businesses and doing other things like you know, one of my side things that I do now is I do like consulting for startups and for brands and what their brand story is and how to incorporate that into their social media. So like, you know, that's the thing. And I can do that from wherever. And, you know, we're seeing that a lot in the arts and creative communities because like waiting table sucks. 
and no one wants to do it and we're all tired of it and we're all tired of being treated like shit and yelled at across the bar or having food thrown at us or being screamed at or tipped poorly or like just name the reason you know it's mm-hmm. it, whatever you're re- about to say is true <laughs> so <laughs> you know we're if nothing like the arts community is creative and able to pivot and chameleon through life and you know that's you have to make both work you talked about needing a mental break from what you were doing. Did that ever take a course that led down a wrong path or was it a good break that kind of helped you clear your mind and move on to the next opportunity? Well, I mean, it's never a wrong path. It's a path that you choose that you learn from, right? Like I've never been like, oh, I bucked up so hard and my life is ruined now. You know, I can look back and question what I did and how it got me to where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. But that is also not helpful. You know, like how, like, that's not, what can you do? Like literally nothing. You can sit there and again, play the victim and be like, Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I'd be in such a better place. Or you can shut the fuck up and like figure out how to move forward in a, from a better place. So like, I needed a mental break because I had worked for like two years straight in starring roles back to back to back to back to back to back to back. back. And that's exhausting. And when you only have like a week or two at a time between and you have to do all the prep work and you have to like learn as much as you can before you get there, because that's just better for everybody. um, It's hard and it takes a toll, especially when you're out of town, you're not near your friends, you're not near your family your whole life becomes that. And that's fine. And I loved it for a very long time. But at that point, I was like, whew, I need to sit down at a desk and stare at a screen and do nothing. <laughs> and then I wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> so have I had a break since? I don't really know. <laughs> what was the inspiration behind the book? So the inspiration behind the book is actually... I think that when people are like, oh, I wrote a book, it sounds like super like masturbatory and like, oh my God, read this book about me and my life. (laughs) But the reason I wrote it was actually for someone else. And it, I wrote it for someone else because of someone else, because they also were articulating to me that they felt similarly. So like when you survive cancer, that a lot of the stuff that they, that happens to you, you're not told and it's not, apparent because it's not the thing that you see in the movies and it's not the thing that you see on tv and there's a whole lot of navigating that you have to do between you know being in the hospital and being told you're good and i just thought that i was like being a mental case and to get over it until i met this person and they kind of said candidly the same thing that i had been thinking for three the past the subsequent three years and um i was like oh shit okay well then i guess this is what i'm gonna write about because i always knew i wanted to do something about it but i wasn't sure what and a one-man show felt like the epitome of masturbation and everyone suggested that that's what i do and i was like absolutely not that's like who cares like if i have to go to one more like i'm in new york it's like cabaret heaven if i have to go to one more one-man show or one-person show where it's like dating in new york city is really terrible like no shit Shut the fuck up. Do something else. Like, this is victim. It's boring. Do something different. You're not interesting. And it's why I won't touch one-person shows with a 10-foot pole. 
Like, I don't care about when you move to New York City to become an actor. I don't care who you're dating, why you're dating them, how you met. Like, swipe right. I don't care. Like, <laughs> can we stop celebrating mediocrity, please? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I I have found, and I don't think this was the original intent, but I have found that people who have read it, who have reached out to me, who are either experiencing cancer themselves or have known someone who has or is, um, it has been a light for them in the sense that, like, you know, they were able to laugh because I made it as funny as I could. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a lot of shit that happens that you're like, wow, that is not what normal humans experience. Cool. And uh, I've also had, like, medical providers, like nurses and other, other people in the field reach out to me and tell me that it changed their opinion and views on bedside manner and how they handle and inter- interact with patients. Wow. So, you know, it it was never the I want to get rich by writing a book thing because that's not real. And, um, you know, it was m- more like I wanted to have the impact of having people read this and, and feel not alone because of their circumstances. After writing one book, has it ever gotten you inspired to write another one? Maybe about something different or something that you enjoy writing about? Yeah, funny you should mention that. Um, For whatever reason, <laughs> this week, I've decided to start two new books. And over the summer, I started another one. And so I kind of have like three or four of them in, in the starting stages of outlining and summarizing. But, you know, we'll see. The This one is being turned into a TV show. We're adapting it for TV. Ooh. It's going to be a musical TV show, very much like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Um, And so that is kind of the priority now. Like writing the other book is like cool and fun and whatever. Um, the, the third option that I have in my head for a book will also be a TV show. I'm going to kind of write them in tandem, but yeah, the, the adaptation for, for screen is, is more important right now. Before we talked about your book, you kind of mentioned about going through cancer. Talk about leading up to that diagnosis. Did you kind of notice anything different about how you were feeling or did you get any medical things that people were telling you? Like what was going on in that process before the diagnosis. Oh yeah. So I had just finished doing a production of hairspray and I came home. I had a three week break and I was going to see my parents. My parents were both at work. So I, it was a nice day. It was summertime. I think it was like July. And I was like, cool, I'm going to get a towel and I'm going to go lay out in the backyard and get some sun and brown, brown up for a bit. And uh, while I was doing that, I was like obviously sweaty and disgusting and covered with grass. So after about an hour, I was like, cool, I'm going to go in and shower. So I went in, I showered. And as I was showering, I felt this little baby lump under my arm. And I was like, um, oh, yeah, shit. What is that? <laughs> um, And it was very small. It was like maybe a peanut or an almond or something like that. Doctors love to compare tumor sizes to food. <laughs> yeah. Just so you know. <laughs> So I will do that periodically throughout. Um, So yeah, I mean, it was a little lump. I had my mom look at it. I had my best friend from high school's mom look at it. She was a doctor and no one knew what it was. They're like, do you feel okay? I'm like, nope, feel fine. Totally great. And like, okay, well, it could be an infection, but maybe whatever. And it wasn't hot. It was just kind of there. And then we're like, well, it's probably a lymph node, but like, you know, there's a billion reasons why those things can swell up randomly at, for whatever reason. So like, let's just, you know, whatever, watch it and see what happens. And 
the f- the weird part about it is that like three or four months prior, I'd started wearing one of those like armbands that you put your phone in so you can listen mm-hmm. to music while you run. And that was my first thought. I was like, oh, like maybe something got like pinched or plugged or something because like I did that and like maybe it just needs like some time to like unsnap or whatever. Um, And so like after I went, I went back to the city and started rehearsal for the next production of Hairspray that I was doing and it got bigger and it was like, the size of like maybe like a small apricot (laughs) (laughs) continuing with the food theme. And so I went to my doctor and he was like, I don't know what this is. Um, He said it could be Hodgkin's, but if you don't feel bad, then probably not. And I was like, no, I feel great. Like I'm in rehearsals eight hours a day. Like I'm fine. And so he sent me to get a, a CT scan and, they were like, it's an infection. So he, in his old ass age, decided that for some reason it was cat scratch fever, which is barely a disease, and gave me a bunch of antibiotics and sent me on my way. And I was like, all right, fine. So I took I took the antibiotics. We went through rehearsal. We went out to Reno, Nevada, which is where I was performing for the next five months. And over that period of time, it kept getting bigger and 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 bigger, and bigger until like my costume had to be taken out. Because it was too big. Like, they had to open the jacket. And it was like, what is happening? So I went to an emergency room out there. They did an ultrasound. It looked like a brain. They didn't know what it was. They gave me a list of things it could be, and all of them were terrifying. So I was like, this isn't real. And I waited until the end of that contract to go back to the city and have a doctor, my doctor, look at it. So five months goes by. It's the size of a grapefruit now. And uh, a large grapefruit, like not quite, a, <laughs> not quite a cantaloupe, but somewhere in between there. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, they they scheduled a biopsy. I had that done, like needle biopsy, where they just kind of like jab it in and pull some cells out and call it a day. And like, I think a week later, I was in chemo. Wow, it was fast. Did they say what exactly it was after they did the biopsy? Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, like the the test came back and they said it was um they said it was like a, a form of Burkitt's lymphoma, which is like the wildest ver- version of cancer you could ever have. And then I later found out that that was incorrect, and that was not what I had. And they were treating me for that, and most of the protocol was normal, but they really fucked up. And I did several rounds of chemo and spinal taps and all this other shit that I arguably didn't really need. Um. You know, but it is what it is. And I ended up getting out of that hospital and going to the, a second one. And that's the hospital that ended up saving my life by redirecting. And they kind of looked at my eyes and they're like, that's not what you have. And it's like rare enlarged Burkitt's like non Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, or rare enlarged B cell Burkitt's like non Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is like, you know, adjacent, but not the same and weirder. And <laughs> <laughs> which didn't make it better <laughs> you know, it wasn't like oh this is actually just diabetes like no it was like <laughs> yeah. you have a you have a worse more rare kind of cancer um <laughs> but i mean that period of time really was like advocate for yourself speak up and say something when the doctor's like do you have any questions say yes regardless yeah. whether you have one or not you'll think of one just say no to what they're telling you and ask questions i cannot stress that enough if we would have gone through the protocol that they wanted me to go through i'd probably be dead yeah hands down 
Like they wanted me to do a stem cell transplant where someone else was my donor and then do full body radiation for three different rounds, which is like three months worth of radiation. Like I had radiation here. Like I'm not, I'm Italian, right? So like, this is, this is the thing. This is where my port was, but like, it still hasn't grown back. Wow. And that was like 11 years ago. So (laughs) I'd look like a turtle still. And it just was, it was a mess. So speak up for yourself, advocate, 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 advocate. My mom was such an integral part of that period of time because she works in medical too. And she knows what she's talking about. Um, And if, like, if it weren't for her, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have felt empowered to speak up and advocate for myself, but I did. And I'm alive. Do you feel learn speaking up from that time has helped you nowadays where you're even more vocal on things that you're involved with in your career and things like that? I don't view it as a bad thing because I think no, it's no, no, perfect I no, totally. that because I'm one of those people, I'm going to question things when I shouldn't be questioning, but I want to learn more and I want to know why am I doing this a certain way? Right. And same, I'm very, I'm curious by nature anyway, but I th- I'm going to say yes, it has, because like before I would have anyway, and in this situation, it took a little courage and like chemo brain is a thing and that kind of fucks up your cognitive ability for a while. But um, like, I think the difference is before I would have spoken up and been like kind of indignant about it, mm-hmm. but like now I, I would speak up and I don't give a fuck like about yeah. your thoughts about what is happening to me. Like, I'm going to say it and it's going to happen. And I don't mean that in like an aggressive mean kind of like every opportunity I get, I'm going to be like, you're fucking wrong. And <laughs> But in that kind of circumstance, like, absolutely. I'm going to ask you questions and I have no qualms. Zero. Did you ever worry about what chemo, like how that would play effect with acting and things like that? Would you be able to do it again? Would it change like how you would perform things like that? Yeah, I mean, I I saw that unfold in real time while I was doing it. You know, I was in the middle of chemo at the very worst of it. And I was getting calls from theaters and other things like TV stuff that was like asking me to come in and, and either do the job, like it was either an offer or an availability check. And I had to say no. And there was one particular one. It was for My Fair Lady down in Florida. And that's one of my favorite shows, which you probably haven't watched, but go watch it. Audrey. Have <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it was for the role of Freddie. And at that point I was like getting to the point where I was almost too old to play it. And it was like my last chance. And uh, I had to say, no, it just absolutely broke my heart. But you know, it affected that in the sense that I asked my doctor if I could go do it. I was like, do you think like, you know, it's not that big of a part. It's just kind of like a, a, like almost walk on princess track where you just come out, you sing everyone's favorite song and you leave. And she was like, that part of your life is over now. Oh, and I was like, "Uh, uh, like what, what a reality check. (laughs) So no wonder I left that hospital. (laughs) Looking at your journey what is the biggest thing it's taught you and what do you utilize today in everyday life? There's so many answers to this. And I think the one that I give the most often to questions like this is that like, I'm fortunate enough enough to know who my friends are. Um, You know, like 
I feel like a broken record saying this, but evidently, as I've learned over the pandemic, not a whole lot of people have that. And that's scary to me. I didn't realize that. I just assumed that everyone had like their little pot of people that were their ride or dies. And that was it. And a friend of mine, I was just texting him today, actually. He said to me during the pandemic, you know, he was like, how are you doing? Like, how do you feel? And I was like, I'm doing great. Like, you know, this friend lives two blocks away. This friend is a block away. This friend's across the park. This one's a little uptown for me. And like, we do walks every whatever Tuesday it was or something. And he was like, oh, wow, you're so lucky. And I was like, well, who, like, do you get to see your friends? He's like, I don't have friends like that. And he was like, not everybody has friends like that. And you're so lucky. And I was like, uh, what? (laughs) (laughs) Like just me living over here in my friend pod of delusion. (laughs) I just (laughs) assumed everybody, you know, it was the same with like growing up playing music in the house. I just assumed everyone was the same, you know, and that's, that's my, my privilege and downfall i suppose in those kind of situations but you know it like the people who were in the hospital for me and were there and took care of me and got things from my apartment and brought things to me when i needed things like like they're my closest friends still are it's crazy to think that in important times in your life the true friends will come and make an impact for you where others will just not even do anything to help. And then right after you're done with it, they'll come right back. Like nothing happens to you. I mean, you fucking nailed it, man. That's exactly what happened. Like there's one in particular case where that happened. And literally the first time they saw me after the fact, they were like, well, you're going to have to talk to me eventually. And I just looked at them and I was like, no, I'm not. Yeah. The end. Um. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's part of it. I mean, certainly the thing I got that is the most prominent in my life now is friends. I know who they are. And, you know, that came at a cost, I suppose. And the argument would be if that never happened, if cancer never happened, would I still have these people in my life or would they still be here? And I just wouldn't appreciate them in the same way, Um, you know, because that wouldn't have happened. So that's, that's one thing. And I think the other thing is that like you get a perspective on your reality in your life where, I don't care. Like, I'm so, I guess, I don't want to say selfish and I don't want to say not generous, but I'm so, like, quick, I guess, to be like, this doesn't matter. I don't care. Next. And that's a symptom of having to face your mortality. And you get this really weird kind of skewed look at time. And we're all running out of it. Yeah. And what's, (laughs) even saying that hurts. (laughs) what's really strange is like even as a kid i always felt like i had a limited amount of time um there's this line in hamilton which you better have seen and uh (laughs) guessing by the look that you have it go fuck it it's on disney (laughs) well this interview's over Um, yeah, so that's your homework. Go watch Hamilton. But there's a line, there's a line in the very beginning that he says, why, or where they all say, why do you write like you're running out of time? And I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, oh, there's a theme of my whole ass life. Like, from the time I was a kid, I was just like, let's hurry up and do this. Like, I want to hurry up and get these things done. I want to hurry up and make things happen. Um, you know, I was trying, I tried in high school so hard to like 
get into a performing arts high school in New York so I could leave Pennsylvania and like hurry up and like have my career and do the things. And, you know, unfortunately life doesn't work that way, but, and it didn't work out that way for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that idea of like having an appreciation for time and how much of it you have and don't have. And like, just knowing that the little things really don't fucking matter. And, like, stop worrying about them. You're wasting the time you have on dumb shit. Like, pick... I I do this exercise at work with some people that I work with that is, like, an I want cycle. And the first thing that every... When you say to someone, like, what do you want? The first thing they will always say is just, like, oh, I just, like, want my bills to be paid, my debt to go away, and blah, 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 blah. And that's never the answer. And it's like, okay, well, like, let's just pretend that that's done. So, like, what, what then? And you just keep doing it and you keep doing it and you keep doing it and you keep doing it. And it's become a really fun exercise for myself where I'll write it down. Like, what do you want? And then I'll write, write it down. And by the time you get to the, I fill up a page and by the time you get to the bottom of the page, like that's really what you want. Interesting. Yeah. So like the time thing is so, it's so weird. It's, I, I don't even know. I know that other people don't feel this way because I didn't beforehand. And then afterwards I did. And it's just this, like, <laughs> I'm trying to get a little bit of it back because it's dwindled a bit. But this, like, sense of urgency of, like, let's go. Let's do the things. Like, don't stop sitting around. Like, let's go. Well, and a lot of people think, like, you see with relationships. Oh, we'll do that in a few years. We'll take care. We'll we'll be able to do that. It's like, I'm one of those people that I would rather do it now and then enjoy it a second time and a third time because... Like you said, any day can be the last day and you want to regret not being able to go do something because you waited too long to go do it. For sure. I I actually tell this story a lot. This has nothing to do with me, but I think it's a good one for what we're talking about. Um, And I don't know if I've actually recorded this story yet. So I, great. You might be the first, who knows? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, my friend Jordan used to work at a very high end mall king of prussia in pennsylvania it's like hermes and chanel and whatever and he worked for this very high-end brand and he worked with this woman who had worked at in a similar space for her whole life and she lived like a church mouse and saved up all this money so that she could go buy a beach house and retire and i don't remember i don't remember the timeline of this but it's not important she was about to retire i think she was like 62 63 and she was going down to florida to look at beachfront properties that she could buy and retire in and live out her days by the ocean because that's what she wanted and that's what she saved her whole life for doing nothing else but saving for this fucking beach house and she had like maybe an hour or two between appointments between realtors to see apartments and so she decided like to go lay on the beach like i'm just going to go look at the my new backyard and she got a little towel and a little chair and she sat down the cha- on the chair on the towel by the ocean and she fucking died. Oh. So, like, she didn't live a life at all because her whole life was centered around buying this beachfront house. Wow. And while she was looking for it, she died. So, like, that is exactly what you're talking about. Like, oh, we'll do it in a couple of years. Do it now. Yeah. Do it now. Like... I don't want to be that person. There are certain people in my life that I have love and respect and admiration for, but they are cautionary tales. 
and I look at them and I'm just like, God, I just like whatever happens, please do not let me turn into that. And it's mostly people who are very angry for very silly reasons. Um, because I don't think that they have an appreciation for what they have accomplished because it's never enough and it's, it's always more and it's never good enough. And, um, you know, I, I do not want to be the person that has put my whole life on pause because of something stupid mm-hmm. to then die on a lawn chair on the beach while I'm shopping for my dream home. Like that sucks. Yeah. Like no one. No one wants that. <laughs> I was not expecting that story to be the ending, but it kind of goes with the whole theme that we were just talking about. But it yeah. sucks that that whole To be time... fair, she wasn't expecting that to be the ending. That's true. Right. That is true. That is true. <laughs> Something we like to do with all of our guests is we've been on your journey so far and our listeners love to learn more about the individual. What is something that you haven't shared to the listeners that you enjoy to do nowadays? That's not work related. It's not professional related. Something that maybe people don't know that you enjoy doing. I mean... I'm a millennial. What do we do that is not work-related, to be honest? (laughs) Um, (laughs) We've been indoctrinated to monetize all of our hobbies. (laughs) Um, I think think if I had to answer this truthfully, it's so boring. I'm such a grandpa. Like, like even just thinking it, I'm like, shut the fuck up. Um, I really... I really like walking. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> when I when I first moved to the city, I like obviously Pennsylvania, you drive to go two blocks because it's just what you do. Um and moving here, it was just like walk, 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 walk. And it's how I learned New York. Because back then there were no smartphones. There were barely cell phones. And like, you know, if you got lost and your phone died, you're you're fucked. So you better know, <laughs> right. You better know where you're at. So um I used to leave my apartment and I would either start walking right there or i would get on the train and i'd pick a random subway stop and i would get off and i'd just walk around and like try to learn the city and i couldn't find a job at the time and life was hard and it was weird and you know it was 19 and in the city and all of that nonsense so i spend a lot of time walking and i have always loved it i've always enjoyed walking around new york specifically it's just the best place to walk there's so much history in the sidewalks and like i always tell people like if you ever get if you ever feel like disenchanted with new york and you feel like shit about living here and you're just like god this fucking place take a walk and look up Mm -hmm. because you will always see something that you've never seen before like and a lot of times it's like old ads from like companies from like 70 years ago when they used to paint ads on the sides of buildings or like it's some building that has like this really crazy ornate architecture above the door frame and it's called something that you were like I didn't know that that was that building was called and you just like it, there's always 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 something and it just brings me so much happiness I try Sundays are my typical day off and I do a whole blackout Sunday where I turn off my phone and I just leave my leave my phone at home and I will walk for miles down Riverside excuse me down Riverside Drive and you know I've walked to Midtown that's like 8 miles And it's just so beautiful and fun. And you just see so much. And it's like, I don't know. I'm such a grandpa. During (laughs) To be fair, fair, my grandpa couldn't walk that far. So (laughs) (laughs) During these walks, have you found a place that has been like a signature place you go to nowadays where you didn't even know existed? I 
lived in the Upper West Side for 10 years, and it used to be the park over there, you know, because it's like, it's a huge park, but unless you live here, you're probably not going there because mm-hmm. everyone's like, I'm going to go to Central Park, which there's also nothing wrong with. But I basically was, I confined myself essentially for like a 20 block radius of Riverside Park. Um, I live uptown now, and so walking downtown is a totally different like landscape than starting in the middle of the island. And it's just this like really nice stretch in the 140s, like low 140s on Riverside Drive that like there's a really steep hill that goes down and it's just the buildings over there are so like old New York and like beautiful townhomes and trees everywhere. And there's a park, you know, and no one's ever there. It's just one of those places that feels like yours, even though there are other people walking by and you just sit down and you're like, this is my park. <laughs> I'm the so fi- boring. <laughs> <laughs> the final question I'll ask you, for someone that's listened to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge? Stop caring. And I don't mean that in the sense that, like, burn the house down. No. <laughs> I mean, care. Okay. So there, this is a two part answer. Caring about what other people think, caring about what's going to happen to you in the short term, caring about like silly little dumb shit, you know, like that. Stop doing that. It's holding you back. Um, I think there was, um, <laughs> there was a TikTok. I say that line all the time. I saw this thing on TikTok. Um, (laughs) I learned so much from TikTok. uh, Where this girl was talking about being delusional. And it was just kind of like letting go and releasing of all of the, like, the holds that life has on you. Like, oh, I have to do this because I have to make money. Or I have to do this because of X, Y, and Z. And it's kind of like we were talking about before. Like, don't wait three years to do it. Do it now. And it's that, that element of not caring. Where it's like, I why do you wait three years? Well, oh, because like, you know, if I do it now, like I, I can't afford to like live or whatever. It's like, that's not real. Like none of that is real. We've all been making money and surviving for however long we've been surviving. Like we know how to get it. You know, if something happens and like you don't have money, we all know how to leave the house and go get some in yeah. one way or another. So like, just stop, stop telling yourself, no, just do it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Edward, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people, and we are excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thank you. I hope this wasn't too unhinged. (laughs) (laughs) Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel to get a full-length episode in video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.